What's going on, everybody? This is Black Men Sundays. I'm your host, Corey Sylvester Murray. We're talking about generational wealth. We're talking about finance, and we're talking about business. It's a Black Man Sunday. Time to put all childish things away. I refuse to be the man I was yesterday. Gotta put my best and before we introduce today's guest, my man from Hunts Vegas, Alabama, who do you have for our Black Men Sunday Spotlight, my brother? Hey, Corey, thanks a lot, man. Um, I appreciate that. The person I want to spotlight today, his name, his name is Lawrence Eggleston. Now, Mr. Lawrence Eggleston is a resident from New York. He moved to Georgia at the age of 12 and grew up in a single family home. He was raised by his mother and he where he, where he could. His mission was to always help people. Now, he started trading and investing in the age of 17 and built a portfolio from scratch. And right now, uh, Mr. Eggleston is 21 years old and is a millionaire. Now, the thing about him, again, he built a portfolio from scratch and he helped others do the same thing as well. His basic message is to help by leading by example and never change who he was and how he felt about money. And like you said, at the age of 22, he made his first million dollars and continued to trade uh, full time now in bill. And his thing is he never gave up. And his thing for he we always tell anyone is to invest first, then consume second is what is the words that he lived by. Again, that's my spotlight for today, Mr. Lawrence Eggleston, 22 years old, millionaire. Back to you, Corey. Wow, Eric, I think last time we had an eight-year-old, now a 22-year-old. Okay, I oh, see yeah. where you're going. And then for a while, you were doing it. Yeah, man, and then for a while, you were doing musicians or people in the music industry. I see um, it must be some good weather down in Hunts Vegas, huh? Yeah, absolutely, man, absolutely. You got drinks in this tea down here, baby. Anyway, I mean, send me some, man. I'm down. I'm in Orlando. You in Hunts Vegas. Send me some, brother. Let's get this thing started. We have Chantel Doswell on the line today on Black Men Sundays. This sister is a licensed clinical social worker. She's a liberation-focused trauma specialist in New York City. The owner of a private practice, Ordinary Healing LLC. We're going to ask her all about that today. She's also the co-founder of the nonprofit, the Floyd Foundation, which stands for Forever Living Out Your Dreams. She's a poet and she's a singer. And check this. She's an adjunct professor at Columbia University School of Social Work. She's been doing that since 2018. So without further ado, Chantel Doswell, welcome to Black Men Sunday, sister. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. How you doing? Oh, I'm ready to go. I'm fired up. I'm ready to go on and get my first question out. You know, like I said, we talk about generational wealth, finance, and business, but we're going to talk about that mental health today. So you know what, in my intro, I'm going to change it to generational wealth, mental health, finance, and business. So let's go on and dive right in, because I feel like when we talk about generational wealth, a lot of times in the Black community, especially as brothers, we compartmentalize issues, mental issues. So how can mental health impact a person's mindset from achieving generational wealth? I mean, that's a big question because I mean, how, how can't it, right? Like I think one of the things I talk a lot about with people when it comes to jobs and when it comes to money is sort of the way we are in school developing into the way we are with work, right? So with mental health, there's sort of a theme that I call schoolishness that can follow a lot of black folks into their career. So if you're told that you're bad, if you told you're not good enough, if you learn how to kind of 
get a little, you know, avoiding of authority, stuff like that, you start to learn your place in the world, right? And so automatically, you have to make sure that one, you're not raising your children to have relationships with authority that imply that they're subservient, right? Like black kids do simple stuff. Like they'll lie to the doctor about how much vegetables they'll eat, right? And a lot of white kids don't do that. And part of the reason is because they're learning that they're the same as this doctor. This doctor is here to serve them, even as a child. Whereas the black kid is saying, well, what's the right thing to say, right? Like what's the, what's the thing I'm supposed to do here? Because I'm not really the same as this doctor. And we carry those habits into our adulthood. We don't see ourselves as bosses or leaders or people who are able to have the same amount of skill as those people who we admire, who have wealth. So a lot of times what we'll end up doing is saying, well, our community can't do it because we are not like them. You know, there's something wrong with us. There's something about us that sort of is deficient as a community. When in reality, that's not true. Historically, that's not true, right? It's really true that there is systemic oppression that makes it difficult for Black people to build wealth because it gets destroyed, not by Black people, right? And so I think when we start to internalize the sort of narratives that about Black people that just come with living in America, automatically we get in the way of things like generational wealth, right? Because we're actually living in a, in a mindset that's really focused on what we lack and our scarcity, right? And not our strengths and not what we do well and not the things that we're naturally talented at. Like we have great community skills. We're naturally very musical. We're naturally very sort of like creative as a community. We generate a lot of ideas that get stolen. And then we don't really give ourselves credit for the fact that that's our stuff, you know? So that means we don't have to project this idea that our kids need to be better than everybody else. It's like, no, you could be yourself. And maybe that would actually be healthier and more successful than trying to be like this white person over here, that white family over there, you know what I mean? And so a lot of the mental health self-esteem and self-image really turns into how big you're able to dream, how much you can kind of imagine for yourself and your kids, you know, beyond survival. You know, we talk about generational wealth. We've talked about generational poverty on this show, but one thing that we haven't discussed, and I'm glad you're here, we haven't discussed generational trauma. So let's discuss that, what it is, because I feel like a lot of brothers have an, and sisters have an idea of what it is, but it's not fully correct. So I, I want the clinical perspective on that. And um, basically, is that also decreasing the mindset of generational wealth? I mean, generational trauma. Let's start with, I guess, what trauma is, right? So really any major event, if it don't even have to be major to somebody else, but if it's a big thing to you, and the reminders of that event make you feel, I, I always say some type of way, right? <laughs> like it doesn't have to be something specific, but you feel some type of way and you can notice it's not totally rational and maybe the less rational, the more likely it's trauma, I like to tell people. And so that goes for communities as well, right? And so if communities are doing things that you're like, why would that be the reaction? Like, why is everybody so mad when we do that thing? Generally, it's an indication that there's something in their history where that's been really threatening to them. Something about their livelihood, their family, their survival has been threatened by something that's coming up right now. And it's not the way that trauma gets remembered is in the body. So you don't have to talk about it and it can still get passed down. Like literally they do uh, studies genetically and people not only pass down genetic trauma, they pass down coping. 
So if you're able to get to a place where you learn to cope through things better than your parents, for example, you also pass that down to your children genetically, right? So we're doing twofold work when we're working on ourselves. We're like, okay, we stop in this. And when my kids won't have to do this too, right? And so the hard part is, is that that includes every type of thing for better or for worse. And so with black folks, that basically means the biggest trauma we've ever been through is chattel slavery, like obviously, right? And so there's this huge hemispheric trauma that's happened for every black person on this side of the earth. And a lot of people don't even know about it enough to understand what it would mean to know what really was the trauma from slavery, right? And then black folks, I think in an attempt to seem successful, often don't tell the stories of the worst things in their families, right? And so even though we don't talk about it, we can see that things function a little funny, right? Like, why do people keep beating their kids even though they keep being all this studies and evidence that it doesn't work? Why are people working so vehemently to defend it, right? And it starts to be like, well, because for them, that they believe that kept them safe, right? That's trauma, right? And so if I don't beat my kid, I'm going to not be able to protect them from whatever thing, right? I think is gonna happen without it. That starts to be just what I know, right? And so generational trauma gets passed down in two ways. One is DNA, right? So if my mom's anxious, I might be anxious. My dad's depressed, I might be depressed, that kind of thing, right? The other thing is that we learn kind of behaviors, right? And so masculinity, for an example, is kind of like, it's different. It's played out different in different regions of the country, for example. Like if you were to go to the South and go to a club, dudes are dancing all over the place, right? You in New York, everybody's right. You know what I mean? It's performative, right? But if you don't perform it right, there are consequences, right? That's what trauma is, is that you learn through the worst things that have happened to you. When we're talking about that, then it starts to become hard when you ask the question about what gets in the way of wealth. It starts to be like, I'm going to look at everything in the world based on the experiences I've had, right? We call it remembering the future, right? And so when you predict what's going to happen to you, you're likely going to predict that whatever has already happened to you will happen to you again. So rather than planning for things that are better to happen, you plan for things that are exactly the same to happen. And so you're basically looking for threats rather than looking for opportunities or things that are kind of like exciting you and drawing you to them. You're just looking for things to keep you safe. And safety is not the same as growth. You know what I mean? Growth is right at the edge of what you're comfortable with. Like if you're working out, you got to kind of grow at the edge of what you are used to doing. That's how you get stronger. It, the same thing happens with mental health. If you don't push yourself outside of that comfort zone, emotionally, mentally, mindset wise, you just go in loops. And a lot of folks, they're so scared. They just focus on the things they're scared of and they loop. So wow. that's the block. Gotcha. Gotcha. And uh, Ordinary Healing LLC. Let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so that's my practice. <laughs> that's what I do. Um, I work only with people who have complex trauma, which means that you have to have more than one major thing that's happened to you. And so some people will be from abusive homes and have had people, you know, be violent towards them. And almost everybody I work with is a person of color. Um, more increasingly, it's men and women. It used to be 
kind of lopsided because more women were seeking therapy, but more and more as men. And um, I tried to integrate body-based work, which means like not just talking because black folks are very smart. We can figure things out. We don't actually need somebody to tell us all the time about ourselves. We know ourselves. The bigger thing is like, can you learn your emotional language? Can you learn the way that you deal with things in the world? And do you know what that means? You know, like, and so we really try to work from your body up to make you feel better. And that can include anything from writing to, I've done stuff with teenagers where we've rapped for an entire session. Um, and there's times where we do just kind of like anything that makes you actually feel good, dancing, moving, things like that. It's not exactly as sad as it would sound like to most strangers, right? Because a lot of healing trauma is about making sure that you feel safe, that you feel good, that you know who you are. And so a lot of my practice is just centered around working with families, couples, individuals who have gone through big events over the course of their life and just kind of need to get back to themselves and feeling kind of grounded in some sort of safety. Gotcha. Yeah, because I know a few brothers that have um, gone through some very, uh, some very rough traumatic event, tragic traumatic events, and they just say, no, I'm fine. They just compartmentalize it. A lot of brothers I hear compartmentalize it. So, you know, yeah. being a specialist, you are just talk about the problems with compartmentalization or is that okay to do? I mean, if it works, it works. I'm just kidding. But I think that it's, it's tough because on some level, I'm not kidding, right? Like if it actually is working for you and you're getting through your day and you're working your job and you're taking care of your kids and something horrible has happened to you, you know what I mean? And you're putting it over in a little box over there sometimes that's the best we can do with what we got. You know what I mean? Like you can't control that it happened. You can't control what it feels like for you to look at it, to go look inside that little box, right? So you put it away in a box and you put it to the side. The hard part of that is that the worst things that ever happened to you are not necessarily going to get stored in a way that's like, there's different types of memory. And I call, one of them is called like narrative memory, which means like talking, like you and I are talking, right? We have a clear idea of what's going on right here and now. The other type of memory is like, the smell of apple pie. Like, I don't have to tell you apple pies in the other room if apple pie is baking in the other room. You just know, like, God, that's apple pie in that room, right? Like, bacon's cooking, you smell bacon, you know what the hell bacon smells like. It's not, you don't have to think about it, but you remember it. And the way you're remembering it is actually called a body memory, right? I've smelled it before, I've tasted it before. So now without even thinking about it, I know it. That's how trauma gets stored. If something bad happens to you, it's faster than anything that you could kind of remember on your own, right? And so you will see something little that other people may not even notice. Like if I just made, I used to work in the prison system. That's where I started out. And so you could make a little face, like just a little flinch. And people would be like, what? Right away. You know what I mean? And I'd be like, I'm not even thinking anything. You know, I'm, this is neutral for me. This is not actually a threatening thing that's happening for me. But because of the experiences you've had, where people have jumped you, where police have arrested you, where, you know, COs have done things to you, any little indication that something's wrong sets off kind of what we call like, you know, the fight or flight response that people talk about, right? And it's like, you can try to put that in a box, but because it's necessary for you to remember things that have harmed you, you can't put it away all the way. So if something reminds you of it, you're going to react. And you're going to do whatever it is you think you need to do to survive, right? And so a lot of people will end up, and you'll see this a lot, getting really angry because it feels safer than getting really vulnerable. 
right? And so you think you're doing the, the job of putting it away, but everybody around you is like, damn, what, what was that about? Why was he so angry? What, what was going on? You know, and it's like, it's actually sort of a way of distancing yourself from getting hurt by people. When I get angry, people can't hurt me. But the downside of that is then when you calm down, people are scared of you. People are distant from you. People are different towards you, right? Like, and that generally is going to hurt you in every area of your life. It's not just like a romantic kind of deal. It's like in your job, in your relationships with your friends, you know, with everyone, they're all going to be put off by the idea that they don't know what the hell they did. And maybe neither do you. And they, they get these erratic kind of responses sometimes. And we all have a friend who does some kind of intense every now and again, right? But I think that there's, everybody has their boundaries and these days is real popular for people to cut people off and you know cancel people or whatever. So you gotta be careful with sort of what's going on. I think some people really started empathizing a lot with Kanye West in part because they felt like he was expressing some things that they were putting in a box, right? And then they reacted out. I do have a question for you. Um, you spoke earlier about um, the scarcity mindset. And I'm wondering if you could kind of delve a little bit deeper into the scarcity mindset um, in terms of how that, how does that, you know, first of all, just give us a little bit more detail on it, but how does that really impact, impact like our ability to think about like either the um, accessing opportunities, taking advantage of opportunities, and then maintaining and managing uh, money. Now, I think the scarcity, there's, a, there's sort of two ways that people use scarcity mindset. One's a little racist, right? Like you'd be like, okay, I got a scarcity mindset. Like I'm poor. Like, let's just be honest, I'm broke. This is not a scarcity mindset. This is a literal scarcity. And I think, <laughs> I think people need to be clear on those two things, right? Like when you are in a literal scarcity, you don't, your bank account's hitting zero. The first thing is, you need to figure out what financial safety means, right? So like safety means I have the ability to not worry about my money. And if, and this is really where the trauma part comes in, if for some reason you find that you could have any amount of money in the bank and you're still scared, right? This is where we get into what is going on, right? Like this is where we talk about a scarcity mindset. This is where we're talking about something is up psychologically with the way you look at money that makes you scared to take any risk whatsoever, right? Because you don't feel safe without someone else telling you what to do maybe, or without a boss, whatever the thing might be, right? Now, the first usual part of that is that historically what that means is that you've probably actually not had money at some point. So it's not really fair to say like, you know, it's just the way you're thinking. It's the way you've lived, right? And like I said, it's remembering forward. So if I've been poor, I'm like, well, shit, if I lose this paycheck, yeah, I got money right now, but I'm gonna be pouring on the street. And, and if you let people play it out for you, they'll tell you what their fear is. And everyone's fear is a little different. Some people will be like, I'm gonna end up all by myself. Some people are like, I'm gonna end up homeless. Some people think that they're gonna end up, you know, getting really successful, but not being able to handle it. And so that's where we start to get into the like, okay, now we're focused on what you can't do. Instead of focusing on all these resources that you might be able to use in your life already, because we're smart, what we've done is we've seen the next scenario and the scenario after that, the scenario after that, and all the five different possibilities that could come from those things. And we're mentally kind of diffusing our energy just by sort of looking at all the things that might go wrong, that might be wrong with us, that we're lacking, 
like it starts to be like I'm focused so hard on what I'm scared of and what won't happen that I am absolutely not thinking about how else this could go, right? The other possibilities are not even there. And I always tell people dreaming requires safety. So you have to make sure that first you kind of calm down about money because you have to be able to just know that you can get through periods where you don't have a lot of money. It's not going to kill you. And can you do that in a way that I, I say doesn't stress stress, right? Like it's already stressful. Like, are you making it more stressful by looking at how incapable you are, how bad you feel, how horrible this is going to be forever? That's sort of a mindset thing where I think a lot of people learn it from their family because their parents argue about money or, you know, their parents don't have money for some reason, right? And then you'll hear them as a kid before you ever have money. Start to talk about like, you gonna spend my money on that? You go like, you got McDonald's money? Like it starts to turn into a conversation that like is focused on scarcity without meaning to really do it. That's how we're living. No, I definitely appreciate that. Yeah, that's that's really illuminating because I know, I know uh, I have friends and even myself to a certain extent sometimes deal with that you know, trauma, even now where I, you know, people could say I'm financially successful or whatever, I'll still fall back into some of those mindsets. And I'm like, wait a minute, where did that come from? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Why am I thinking, I don't, you know, I can afford McDonald's, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, oh, wow. like that's a, even if I'm going to Whole Foods, right? It's like, well, I, I can afford the Whole Foods grocery bill though. Like I'm not, it's not going to put me, it's not going to make me homeless. You know what I'm saying? Cause I, I feel like sometimes that also affects like, like, I'll just use myself as an example. Like, sometimes that will affect my ability to make healthier choices because I'm like, well, if I buy organic food, it's more expensive. But if I'm looking at my financial outlook, I'm like, I could probably afford a couple more dollars on the grocery bill if it's going to keep me healthy. You know what I'm saying? That's, um, that's natural for any of us, right? Like, you try to change something that you've been doing to keep yourself safe for decades. Yeah. You find resistance. You're going to find yourself kind of stuttering or making a different the yeah. different choice you know in the news lately has been you know uh unfortunately unfortunate events that happened on january 6th mm. um you know the capitol police officer uh harry dunn has been in the news lately and he actually put out a tweet not too long ago um saying you know talking about a ptsd event that he had like it was a you know he had like a p he said he called it a ptsd flare-up you know what i'm saying where something happened and it was really traumatic to him. And he said it really broke him down. Uh, but he put the post up. And when he was asked why he put the post up, he said it was because he needed, he felt that it was necessary for him to be able to show publicly that it's all right to be vulnerable. So, and, and you know, just as a, a black man myself, like vulnerability is not generally something I'm ever interested <laughs> in doing, you know? And so um, I'm just wondering from your perspective, because you also touched on vulnerability earlier, what do you feel is the strength in being able to be vulnerable and how does that counteract, you know, the effects of trauma? People kind of misunderstand PTSD sometimes, like which part of the thing is actually traumatic. What can be really hard for people is that the reaction everybody else has is like something's normal when something horrible has happened to you. Now, if something horrible happened to you and everybody went, oh my gosh, what a horrible thing, poor baby, let me comfort you, let me love on you, then it would be appropriate. Your mind could handle that, right? But when something happens, like I said, I used to work in a prison system with teenagers and the teenagers I work with would get jumped a lot and people thought it was normal. And I remember thinking to myself, multiple people coming at me, beating me up, 
even if it was normal, would I be traumatized? Like, would it, would it be a lot? And so I started asking about it. I'd be like, how was that? And, and people would be like, no one's ever asked. Everyone kind of acted like it wasn't a big deal. Like you could hear that by the time that these young men were kind of experiencing themselves as kind of grown, even though they're like 14, 50 years old sometimes, right? Like what you could, what you could really see is that like people hadn't even considered that they had a vulnerable side, that they cried, that they lost people, that they're hurting, that the reason that they're in the prison system is because something is up in their life, you know? And so you would kind of end up in this really weird space where as me as a black woman and a therapist, I'd be like, I've never seen this many black men cry in my whole entire life. Like <laughs> I had never seen this many black boys and men cry ever anywhere. And so just to know everybody I was working with, just cause I was asking was breaking down like that. I was like, whoa, like I'm thinking people are angry. I'm thinking people are, you know, doing things that make no sense. And what it is is that I'm ignorant. I have no idea what these people are walking around with. And I think when we label it, you know, PTSD, people go, ooh, cause I don't have nothing, you know? But if we start to break down the experience of it, and I think music does this a lot for people, which is why people are drawn to it. There's like a vulnerability that comes up that we're like, yeah, I feel that too. You know what I mean? And that experience is kind of like, okay, I'm less traumatized right now because I know I'm not the only one. You know, that's where the vulnerability becomes strengthening in both directions. One, that anybody cares, right? That you said it and somebody cared that you actually exposed your truth. But the other part is that someone else might need to know, even though you look on Instagram like you're having a great time, even though you're married or have children and everything's checked off on your checklist, that there is something that you think about yourself that they think too, right? And that you're struggling with, that they're struggling with too, that success doesn't mean perfection. And I think a lot of people really need to understand that, that successful people are not perfect, right? Rich people aren't better than you. There is no distinction between where they start and you end, right? Like, it's sort of like, they're people, you are a person. Right, people struggle through things, but if we're not vulnerable enough to admit that, what we get is Instagram. What we get is a mask. And Black people do exceptionally well at masking their pain with some fun, exciting shit to look at. You know what I mean? But we're, it's just, it's just really harmful also to your health to not kind of let it out. My wife sometimes says, you know, I think you might, I think you need to go get checked out. I was like, why? I'm good. She was like, no. Every time I look at you, you're on Robin Hood, you're on the chase, you're checking stocks, you wake up in the morning before you even give me a morning kiss or say good morning, you're checking stocks, you're checking stocks before you go to work. I just think like you're just like just too enamored with it. And she thinks that something physically may be wrong mentally, but I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm, I don't think so. But, you know, since you're licensed clinical, I want to know from your point of view, because a lot of my brothers do that, you know, we have our money in different stocks bonds and uh crypto but which you know created a lot of stress for us but because of the frequency that we're looking at our money is that a problem well let me ask you why are you looking so frequently you know sometimes i'm up sometimes it's down sometimes i'm like oh man should i sell it so you know you're just kind of always looking at it well i am just in case there's a shift that you need to move on 
Yes. Or if I should buy more of that. But I'm just saying, you know, I'm at the point now where I'm trying to establish this generational wealth. I'm taking in everything these financial advisors, accountants are telling me. But my wife is like, that's cool. But, you know, I feel like you're doing that more than you're doing other things, to say the least. To say the least. Well, I mean, I guess the the problem is in the problem, right? Like, I think there's two things that are, are kind of that pop out, right, as a as an issue. One thing is that behaviors can become compulsive, right? Like, so we all do things that are a little compulsive. So like, we might have like turned off the stove, but we check it two or three times just to make sure the gas isn't on, right? Or like we lock the door, but we go check it a couple of times or whatever, right? We do little things. Something that we do often becomes habitual, right? So if I'm checking all the time, what I might notice is that even if the internet service is out, I'm still picking my phone up, right? And so what that means is that it's now gone from being a conscious thing to being an unconscious thing. That's where we kind of get in trouble with habits, right? Because now it's like, I'm, this is not a thoughtful thing. I'm not choosing to do this every day at the same times. I'm doing this without thinking about it first, right? And so now it's not even a choice. It just is what I'm doing, right? And I think anything that's that autopiloted, unless you absolutely need it to survive, you kind of got to be careful, right? Because even if you was eating gummy bears without thinking about it a lot, it's okay to eat gummy bears, you know what I mean? But everything's about balance. And so a lot of men, particularly black men that I work with who are in families, they look at themselves as a head of the household, right? And what that generally means is that I need to provide. What that also means for their partners when I speak to them in partnership is that they often feel like they're missing that they need to emotionally provide and kind of physically provide other types of support, right, for the family. And people are craving that. They're hungry for that in the family, right? The kids are hungry for that. The wife is hungry for that. Not because they need your money, but because they like you, because they love you, because they want you around, because they want to hear your opinion, right? It's like just making space for the stuff that's important because there's so much stuff that's urgent can become really difficult. And it's something to watch out for, right? So if you're not thoughtful about it, if you're not making conscious choice to say, this is important to me, so I'm gonna make sure I'm taking time out to, for example, spend time with my family. Even simple things like couples will not be having sex and they'll be like, well, we're busy and we're tired in our jobs. And I'm like, y'all make it a whole lot of money. I don't know what this is for. Like, what do we enjoy the fruits of our labor? What is the kind of, what is the kind of output of this input on living? You know, because it's also why we tend to get sick. Americans are pretty, pretty perpetually anxious, right? Like we have a lot of anxiety about making money. And so we always are like, I could lose money. I, I'm going to make money. You know, it's always a good reason. But it checks you out a little bit from the present, right? That actually can become a scarcity mentality. I'm so scared I'm going to lose money every single second, right? That I can't let go of the idea that if I lose money, sometimes that's worth it for some things. I don't make money every hour of the day, but I also know I have a capacity with how much I can do in a day without being a horrible person after the day is over, right? Like that's the secondary part because I'm gonna be irritable and annoyed and not wanna deal with people because once we get really focused on work, we're also less social. That's the other kind of hard part. So it's not, your, your wife's not wrong. Maybe just a little uh, internal discipline, you know, so that everything fits in. Wouldn't be the worst thing. It doesn't mean 
Now people tell people to go to therapy all the time. And I feel like what they're really saying is like, I want someone else to tell you <laughs> what I'm telling you, but I want you to feel like it's coming from a neutral party, you know? Cause like, what else is a therapist gonna tell you? You know, except for if that's a problem for your, for your wife, it probably is a problem for your marriage, right? Like it's only two of y'all in that thing, so. Yeah, but see, I'm saying, how is that a problem? You know, I move money around, holidays come, we just had Christmas. She had a good Christmas. So, you know, some of that came from some of that. So, some sure. of the so yeah. So to it's me, a that's double, a- it's a double edged thing. So I'm hosting a couples retreat uh, next month, actually, for black couples. And one of the things that is going to come up, which always comes up, right, is the idea that sometimes there's not enough appreciation and respect on both ends. And if there isn't enough cushion, that criticism is not going to hit right. You know what I mean? Like if you get a little criticism of, hey, you're on your phone too much, but there hasn't been enough appreciation and respect for the fact that you're working for the family, right? Like that's what you're doing. And so what it starts to be is, and this is the negative filter again, right? Five good things to every one negative thing in a relationship. That's what a balanced, happy relationship is, right? And so we've got to be present to get those things. And we got to also make sure that we're kind of given those things too so that we can kind of get it back it's it's not it's not big stuff right but it's like eye contact if somebody talking to you and you looking at your phone right that's one negative just so you know right and so now we need five positive things around that for the relationship to feel good again and positive can just be a good conversation positive can just be a comforting touch it doesn't have to be a big gesture but a bid to be like this relationship matters to me you matter to me I'm here and we can all do that. I think a lot of us in longer term relationships, we can, it can get kind of taken for granted, right? That those little bids aren't happening for a little while when things get crazy, especially during Christmas season and things like that, right? Like you'd be like, look at all this stuff going on right now. We all triggered. So it's like, that's why I'm like, I get it. But I also think that couples are a system, right? Like both of y'all are gonna affect each other. And it's a good thing. You know, you want her to want you to be paying attention to the family and her, right? Worst exactly. things have happened. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it is, but because she wants that, it's a problem. It's a problem, right? That's enough. It ain't got to be a problem for the bank account for it to be a problem. But before I let you go, um, I do want to talk about the nonprofit, the Floyd Foundation. Sure. I think uh, Forever Living Out Your Dreams, I, I think is really interesting. First off, tell us a little bit about that. Just where did the idea of that come from? Because it is a nonprofit. Yeah. So the Floyd Foundation was kind of like this organic idea that happened because I was working with a comedian, actually, whose name is Trina B. Real. And she had lost her partner um, and the father of her two-year-old to a shooting, like a random shooting at a bodega. And um, so her now daughter, who's 32 years old, um, and I and her were kind of talking about this idea that we all sort of randomly had, which was like, stuff costs too much. Like the good stuff, the evidence-based stuff that people really need is not even hard to do, but everybody's trying to charge so much for it that the people who need it the most can't really afford it. You know, like the people who are going through the most stuff obviously can't make a bunch of money just struggling through life. And so we were sort of like, you know, let's try to work together because her brother was waiting on social security income is what you get when you have a disability, mental health or physical, right? 
he was waiting on the government to provide it and passed away while waiting, right? And we were like, damn, well, if the benefits are that slow, <laughs> somebody should probably create a nonprofit so people can get the support they need, you know, for free and have access to it because they deserve access to it. Because as a kind of community, I think oppressed people who haven't had access to good medical care and mental health care and evidence shows we get less evidence-based care than any other population of people. When we go to the doctor, when we go to therapist, we write not to trust people sometimes because we're not getting the best care all the time. And so the goal was, I know a lot about trauma. I know a lot about evidence-based care because I'm teaching at Columbia all the time, remembering all the, all the fundamentals and stuff. And then my partner has been through a lived experience of what it is like to try to access things and not be able to really get what you need. So we're creating all types of little opportunities for people to heal in fun and creative ways. So we have, we have a monthly comedy show that's starting, for example, a, La a Laugh Your Pain Away a monthly show that we're doing. We're also um, trying to plan a free retreat um, for folks by the time that the year is done. Um, we're going to be having monthly free breathwork sessions and meditation sessions for folks. And so that'll all be up on our calendar. And the website for the nonprofit is foreverlivingoutyourdreams.org. Um, so if you want to check it out a little bit and see what that's all about, the, the Instagram is the same name. So that's, that's what that's all about. It's just giving folks stuff that I do charge for, right? Like just giving back, right, to some degree. Exactly. And also for Ordinary Healing LLC, how can... Uh some of my listeners contact you there. So I have a website. It's just my name, Chantel Doswell, LCSW, like licensed clinical social worker, Chantel Doswell, LCSW.com. Um, I also have a little Instagram page where I give people advice and a little guidance that's called at people, PPL, always ask um, on Instagram. And what I try to do there, same thing with the nonprofit, right, is give little tidbits that I think everyone should just know like out, like, I'm like, I wish everybody knew this, take that information, you know, so that's where you can get some of the juice for free, because my caseload been full since the pandemic, folks, is how you're hurting. Okay, and uh, last but not least, because you know, this is a, we do talk money as well, finance, so if I'm looking mm -hmm. at Chantel's portfolio, what am I going to see on there? For me, and I have sort of a international, my family's from Tortola, Virgin Islands, which is, that's where the retreat's going to be. But it's also, I have some stuff that I do that's really just based on trying to create spaces, right? So we're talking property, real estate, literal, physical space, um, and also my retirement fund, and also, which is, I try to keep it ethical, you know, they, they, you know, they got those advisors who can get you with some ethical stocks. I'll be trying to be like, hey, let's figure that, that in there. <laughs> um, but obviously, I also do private practice and, and do retreats now. And so that's sort of a, it's more, more than I, I need to do, I think. But the, my grandmother is the person who bought all the properties in the family, and she didn't even have a high school diploma. So in her name, I try to kind of keep the business-oriented stuff business-minded and keep the therapy stuff therapy. You know, like, I'm like, we don't need to hear your feelings if I'm, do we have a contract? <laughs> Let's just make sure that we figured out that you paid me on time. <laughs> I was, just as you were talking, I was thinking about the subject of, of empathy and just wondering uh, what your thoughts on are on, you know, do you feel that 
we could use, or maybe we could always use more, but do you feel like we could use more empathy in society? And what are some ways that we could just practice being more empathetic? Yeah, you know, why right. not? I mean, empathy can't hurt. I mean, right, but, right. <laughs> but the, the what can we do part of that is, some of it is about slowing down. Like I know it's not the culture all the time, but a lot of times we're moving so fast that we don't even notice what we're reacting to, let alone what other people are doing to us. And I always say, what belongs to you? What belongs to them? And in terms of energy, it's really important to understand that a lot of stuff don't belong. It doesn't hurt you to have empathy for things, but in order to really have empathy for it, you gotta feel safe from it, separate from it. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of us don't. So when we see people arguing in a comment section, or for example, we're like, I gotta say something, you know, we feel like it's, you know, we can't lend, lend it and, and active listening which is a skill we can all Google right now if we wanted to, right? Active listening is harder than it seems, right? Which is just, it's like, just be present. Can you do that without jumping in? Can you do that without judging? Can you do that without condemning? Because curiosity is worth a lot more than advice. And I think a lot of people wanna be helpful. And what is helpful is allowing people to be the expert on themselves. So lend the empathy. You don't know more about them than they know. Right, like, and so, especially for black people, because we don't like to be told about ourselves. Like, that's, that's where empathy is gonna get you out of a lot of conflict. If you could just believe that they're doing what they're doing because it's the best that they could do what they know. Empathy actually in a physical way also kind of calms the body down so we don't get into fight or flight as easily. So if you feel angry with somebody and you're like, but I gotta work with them. The easiest thing to do is to be like, let me understand the thing that I hate the most about them. Let me try to understand where that comes from so that I can calm down. Not so that they can be somebody special to me, right? But just so that I don't have to walk around with this burden of feeling like every time I see them, I feel negative. A lot of times, uh, Black men, we get the, the angry, you know, angry Black man, or we get upset or, but a lot of times we're angry in areas that can potentially harm us financially, harm our relationships. So is there, and I know I'm gonna have to pay if I keep asking you, but I'm just saying, is there like a good breathing exercise or something that mentally can calm you down so you don't lose it? Because I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty cool, calm guy, but there's certain situations that happens that can, you know, take me back to East New York. You know what I mean? So is there some type of uh, breathing exercise, some type of mental, uh, where I need to think about something just in that moment. Mm. So, because I always see brothers where they blow up and then an hour later, they're all like, man, I wish I did this. I wish I did that. But they don't, we don't know what to do in the heat of the moment. Now, this is why I do body-based work. The first week I work with anybody, all that I tell them is notice your body, just notice it. Notice what makes it feel better. Notice what makes it feel worse. Because the first thing we're actually looking at is a relationship with this kind of feeling that's coming up. And a feeling is not like angry. A feeling is like my chest is getting tight, my fists are bundling up, like I can feel my, breath, my breathing getting, that's literally what you're feeling, right? And so it's like, if you can start to have a relationship where you detach a little bit from your body, what you can actually do is notice before you say anything, right? And so that way you can take a break. What a lot of times we need is to figure out what self-soothing looks like, right? Like if you're upset and you go by yourself and you get more upset, 
you're probably not self-soothing in the time that you took, right? You're probably looping, like we were talking about before. Some negative happened, I'm mad about it, I'm going into a loop, like they're wrong, I hate them, they betrayed me, whatever, right? But the other thing is little stuff that makes us angry that it's like, we only have so much capacity, right? So sometimes we're actually getting upset because I just can't take anymore. I've been through a lot today, I'm tired, I'm hungry, whatever the thing might be. And you can actually go and take a break and fix that. Like you could eat some food, you could take a shower, you could take a nap, like whatever. Ideally, we work from the body up. If everybody ate the way they were supposed to eat and slept the way they were supposed to sleep, we'd eliminate a lot of the mental health issues right there. But the other part of it also is breathing wise, a lot of people don't breathe right. You're supposed to be breathing down to your belly, right? So if you were to breathe right now and take a breath in, the hope would be your belly expanded and then you breathe out and your belly gets you know, smaller. Now, a lot of us breathe into our chest, which actually works you up, right? So when you're angry, you're like trying to breathe, doing that. And that's actually how you breathe when you're angry. It's not like it makes you angry to breathe like that, right? So working from the body up means let me literally take a breath because if I breathe different, what'll end up happening is my body will start to calm down a little bit, right? So if I breathe through my belly and what I usually do is I'll use my fingers and I'll just do it five times. Ain't nobody got to know. I'll just be, you know what I mean? You just, just talk to me. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm breathing, right? And so in those five breaths, what I'm actually doing is I'm giving myself a choice. What do I want to do right now? You can be angry. It's not against the law, right? But we want to tell the truth and not ruin your relationships. So that's the kind of line for me when I'm having an argument with somebody, I'm like, do I want to know this person after this? And if I'm like, yeah, let's not destroy their life, you know, in the next five minutes, then let's try to say something that's going to communicate a, I love you and B I'm angry. Right. So you need to know both. And I think a lot of people think people are saying, don't be angry, but what they're really saying is I can't communicate with you right now right? You're scary. I I don't know what's going to happen next. This feels unpredictable. And so that tends to be sort of the intervention, right? Is that if you can make it more predictable, if you can kind of self-soothe with a breath, with some belly breathing, right? There's also kind of this idea of square breathing where you can pick a tile and be like, I'm going to inhale up the side of that tile, hold it for the top, exhale for the other side, and hold that exhale for the bottom, right? And just do that as many times as you need in a square, right? That tends to also be a really easy go-to. You only got to remember a lot to do that. So if breathing is a hard thing for you, I also like those little um, fidget things people have been using. I like those. You seen those little fidget toys people have with the spinners and the little, they have like a whole bunch of little gadgets on them. They just keep your hand busy. Mm, okay. Okay. I think I'm old school. I'm used to the, the little squishy balls. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, an interesting brain hack is your brain, when it's hard for you, when you get overwhelmed a lot, which is why a lot of Black people seem angry. They're actually just getting kind of overwhelmed and they're saying something because they're overwhelmed, right? And so if you take like cold showers or cold baths for as long as you can stand it, for as long as you can stand it, what will happen is, is that your tolerance for things that are uncomfortable will increase naturally. And so you won't have to do as much sort of emotional thinking or like, analyzing you'll be able to kind of deal with stress just a little better because you're dealing with physical stress and that's what i said the body's the body and the brain they connected so if we work with one we help the other 
Oh, great. Well, I, I just have one last question for you, Chantel. Did you enjoy your experience on Black Men Sundays? I did enjoy my experience. Definitely. Well, <laughs> Chantel Doswell, thanks for coming on Black Men Sundays. I'm glad you enjoyed your time. See you later. Peace. Thank you. It's a Black Men Sunday. Time to put all childish things away.